you've ever wondered what it would have been like to date Prince. Listen to his first fiance, Susanna Melvoin. He was so adorable. On top of all of this, you know, this sexual mystique, he was just a sweet boy. Welcome to a special edition of Torrey Show. This week's show is all about Prince and what it's like to meet, date, and love him. Our story is told from the memories of my friend Susanna Melvoin, the singer who for years has led the family, a.k.a. F Deluxe, who co-wrote Starfish and Coffee, who was the inspiration for Nothing Compares to You, who is the twin sister of Wendy Melvoin, the incendiary guitarist from The Revolution. Prince and Susanna met before Purple Rain at a time when Prince was big but not globally ginormous. At their beginning, he was sometimes staying at their house with all that entails. We'd be in our little two-bedroom house with two cats that would jump on him in the middle of the night on the couch and... Wendy, Lisa, can you get the cats? (laughs) He quickly became an icon. And he wasn't always monogamous, she knows. But she loved him to the end. He proposed to her, and she accepted. But you'll see. For anyone who loves Prince, this episode will be a goldmine. I have been dying to give you this one for a long time. Get ready for a look at a different side of Prince from someone who knew him as well as anyone. Susanna Melvoin on Dating Prince, today on Torre Show. Prince, 1983. <laughs> I met him in 1983. Do you want to know how I met him? Mm-hmm. I met him at a Christmas party, and I'd been working for David Geffen. I got out of high school. I was 17, and I was working for David Geffen. I was his um, receptionist at the Geffen Records, and it was the Christmas party coming up at that December and, you know, the little girl gets invited to the Christmas party. I walk into the party, and I'm sort of wandering around, and I notice Prince and Vanity. And they're standing alone on the far wall, and I find a payphone. And I, I have to call Wendy. I have to call Lisa. And I was like, what do I do? Should I say something to him? He's here. I was a fan, and... I was super excited that in, uh, Lisa had got the gig with him. Um, so cut to me calling Lisa and Wendy saying, he's here out of nowhere, and he's here with, with vanity. I, should I say something? And they said, yeah, just go up to him and say, say hi. But So I was all prepared, you know, and I am wearing the silliest, silliest outfit. I'm just feeling so not pretty, not, you know, just an awkward 17-year-old girl not having any idea and then I I'm starting to walk up to him and he's standing in front of Vanity it's almost like that Rolling Stone cover and she's behind him sort of wrapped around him and he's standing there wearing exactly the same outfits and incredibly beautiful people you know just beautiful and 
me a big smile on my face. I start walking up closer, no smile on his face, just deadpan, like just big eyes staring at this girl walking up to him. And I say, hi, um, I'm Wendy's twin sister, Susanna, and Lisa, um, who's like my sister. I just want, I'm here. I just wanted to say hi. And he went, hello. Mm. And then vanity. Oh, look at how cute she is. Look at those chubby cheeks. And she came up to me and she was like, oh, those big, fat, chubby cheeks. And uh, I was like, couldn't have been more uncomfortable. It was like shade beyond shade beyond shade beyond shade. It was just like, okay, little girl, you're coming up and guess who's mama here, right? Look at how cute those fat chubby cheeks are. And I just said, well, it was great meeting you, really. It was just great meeting you. And I just turned around and I walked away and I just was like, oh, was that a bad idea? Was that a bad idea? cut too wasn't a bad idea because within the few months of that meeting and Wendy getting the gig it was within that year that he was knocking on my door how did it go from you're so cute to knocking on your door he we would through that through that year he was coming out to California a lot and calling Lisa and saying, can I stay with you? And Lisa and Wendy and I, we lived together um, in a very tiny little place really close to here. It's funny because as I was driving here just on Fountain, at Cherokee and Fountain is Sunset Sound where it all began. I mean, he would come and pick, pick us, pick me up up the street and we'd come down here and record. It was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then he got the purple motorcycle, and it was like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth from my house to the studio, which is just down the street from here. So um, we'd go pick him up at the airport in Lisa's car, and we'd bring him to our house. And it was just Wendy, Lisa, myself, and Prince. And we'd be in our little two-bedroom house with two cats that would jump on him in the middle of the night on the couch and Wendy Lisa can you get the cats <laughs> can you get the cats <laughs> and, and I had my bedroom was right off the living room and it had no doors it just had like saloon waving like you know here I am kind of doors this, I don't know what they were slat doors yeah, yeah. saloon doors so there was no there was nothing on the bottom. Right. You could you just turn. You could look underneath and see what was going on. Um, so there was really no privacy for anybody in that house. And <laughs> poor Prince, Wendy, Lisa, can you come get the cats? <laughs> um, but we he started coming out a lot, and I'd been working with Quincy Jones at the time. Not only was I working at Geffen Records, but I was also trying to get into session singing because, mm-hmm. anyway, so I had auditioned for this a cappella group for Quincy Jones and got the gig. And it was Saida Garrett, wow. um, um, Kevin Dorsey, 
but it was all black except for me. And it was a huge honor for me because that's all I ever wanted to, to do was to just sing and sing with who I felt I wanted to sing with, which was, you know, black music, great black singers. I didn't find myself at the time, you know, let's be in a group of Joni Mitchells. It wasn't happening for me. That's not what it was. So one of the, one of the nights um, I had had my audition tape and Wendy and Lisa said, play it for Prince. You got to play it for him. You got to play him the audition tape. And he's, we're all in the kitchen. It's a teeny tiny little, it's about the size of this room, the house. And I say, I, I, I'm not playing him anything. No. I'm, I, so I go into my little room with the saloon doors. Of course, you can hear it. There's no privacy. I can hear everything. They hear everything. And I buried myself in my, my covers. I couldn't stand it. But they played my audition tape that I got the gig with Quincy for Prince. And big, giant smile. No, no, no words, just a huge, goofy smile on his face. And Wendy comes in and she says, he's smiling at crazy. He loves it. He thinks it's adorable. Like, adorable? Am I adorable and chubby-cheeked? And everything about me is just adorable. He's so cute. And um, he loved it. He thought it was great. And um, I want to say within a, a week, he came back again. And um, he was in the living room and he comes and sort of knocks on the saloon. Can I use the bathroom? The bathroom is in my room, again, with saloon doors. There's no, nothing. Sure, I'll leave. And so I go up to the other side of the hallway. And um, then he comes back inside and he says, uh, Susanna. And I walk and he's standing in, at my bed and he's looking at and he goes, you sleep in that? And I said, yeah, and it had a huge dip in the huge, huge dip in in the mattress. And he said, and he sat on. It, he said, "You actually sleep in this?" And I said, "Well, yeah." And he goes, "Do you have a job?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, you "Can't buy yourself a mattress?" I was like, "Well, I only sleep on that side of it." <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Oh," and he sort of. Put his hand down on the bed. He was like, wow. Okay. And the next day I came home and there was a huge mattress and a box spring at my door. And I thought, oh my goodness. Wow. It was. What an amazing gift. Huge. Like amazing gift. Yeah. Then I got. Do you want to come down to the studio? see what we're doing right now sure and so it started to progress like I had this feeling like I was getting a, 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 a focused attention from him that was I knew was unique I knew that it was not you know like oh here's a really you know uh, effervescent um, communicative guy who's just being who he is no 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 I knew he was he was like this is someone who I want to know more than just, you know, can you come get the cats off of me? Hmm. So, um, and I was, of course, I was like, yeah. I thought it was 
extraordinarily talented. He was like a hero, even back then to me. And, um, and spending so much time with Wendy and Lisa and myself at my house, it was, it seemed like a, a natural progression almost, you know, Wendy and Lisa together and then Prince was like, oh, and Susanna and Prince together. Like we have this little thing. And it, it, it felt that natural. Mm. Um, I know that he was seeing other people at the time, although it never occurred to me to say, hey, if you're going to be coming after me, you may want to tell your friends that, you know, like, it's got to be, you know, just you and me. There's <laughs> none of that. None. I Right over my head. Like, I, it never even occurred to me to say anything like that. But it caused some ruckus. There was a, a woman he was seeing at the time who I think to this day still hates me for it. But I had no idea. I mean, sorry if you're listening. Not only did I not know who you were, it wouldn't have even occurred to me. So, sorry. <laughs> so, it just... I mean, I could go on, but you, maybe you want to... Well, when does it make the next leap? When does it make the next leap? When I'm at the studio and he comes and attacks me in the in the bathroom. What happened? I came down to visit him. He asked me to come down, and I walked into the studio, Studio um, A at Sunset Sound, and <laughs> I say attack, but he didn't attack. But um, he was in the studio, and door was closed, so I need to use the restroom myself. So I go in, and I hear shoes. Click, 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 click. I open the door, he opens the door, shuts it tight, pushes me up against the wall, and he just starts kissing my face. Kissing my face. And I'm like, it's a good thing I have my pants up. You know, like, oh, it's a good thing I wash my hands. What's up? So he's just kissing me all over the place. He's like, I can't stop thinking about you. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. And then he opens the door and he goes out. Okay. Okay. That was sweet. We didn't go from boyfriend and girlfriend at that point. It was still, um, he was courting me for a very long time. He would send me flowers to my door for two years straight. There was flowers at my door. Um, I once, um, Purple Rain was being shot. They started to go, actually went that following summer was Purple Rain um, rehearsals. So all the band, everybody was in the film. They were all, everyone was convened in Minneapolis at the rehearsal space, at the warehouse. Everyone was getting their classes and their, you know, dance classes and their acting classes. And um, I came to visit Wendy and Lisa and um, walked into the warehouse which is very funny. I walk into the warehouse, hot July, I think it was July, just blistering hot, sweltering. And I walk in, and the first person I see who's walking towards me is Vanity. And she's walking right up to me. She sees me, and she says, oh, it's you again. You are going to have so much fun here. She said, you're going to have so much fun here. And I just looked at her like, 
and I could see, I started sort of looking around for my sister, and then I see Prince, and he says, he starts walking right up to me, and he goes, he goes he's shaking his head like a no, kind of like that, and she leaves. She walks out the door, and he says, don't listen to her. I don't know why he said it. He was like, it's nice to have you here. So I come in and I'm sitting on one of the anvil cases and I'm seeing them do whatever they're they're doing and I get it may have been may have been may have been Bobby it may have been it could have been my sister who said oh, that was uh, vanity she's leaving she's not coming back she's not in the film she's out that was the last day she had just said I'm out I'm not I'm not doing this I'm out. So that's where I think I'd walked into something pretty gnarly mm. and it was, that was it. That was the last, last time I saw her and it was the last time she was to be on set. So, um, he, you know, he, he, it's not like he came, he didn't come up to me and start having a conversation with me. Oh, this is Vanity's last day. There was of none of not. that. No. Um, I'd heard it through whoever. Now, okay, wait. You, you we're at the point of making Purple Rain, the movie. It was rehearsals for it. Yeah. But at that point, the, the album soundtrack. Was, the, yes, the that album was already was done. done. Yep. Go back and talk to me about the making of that album from your point of view. Do you see him in the studio ever? Oh, yeah. Do you see no, him writing I, the songs? Oh like, yeah. What, what does that all of it look like and feel like? And just Prince creating the his magnum opus what is that um, like it was really exciting you know obviously um wendy and lisa and i lived so close to the studio to sunset sound um that as he was recording the record he was back and forth to our house so there was a i have to say from my own personal experience it seemed um, it seemed like we were part of what he was doing. It wasn't. I just sort of happened to be a part of his his landing strip. Like he'd go back and forth, and there were times where he'd be in the studio all night long, and he would call Wendy and Lisa and say, "Come in um, to do some." overdubs or can you come and sing on this or can you do this can you do this and then we'd all go down or um it would just be Wendy and Lisa going down and doing what they needed to do um but I found myself going down there all the time all the time to the studio um as a matter of fact just after Let's Go Crazy was recorded um I remember getting a cassette of it and taking it with me and driving home which and listening to it and thinking, oh my God, it's just, it's so huge. It's huge. Like, you never hear this kind of big sound. Um, or at least you haven't, I haven't heard this in a long, long time. I don't know how, what, what the reference would have been even at that moment in time. Um, and then I remember a friend of mine had been at the house and I said, you have to hear this. You have to come in the car. You have to hear what they're doing. You have to hear this thing. And played him Let's Go Crazy. And he was blown away. Like, what is going on in the studio there? What are they recording? And um, 
he had just done Let's Go Crazy and then I think within the after he finished because he would go in and cut mix within nothing would stop he would just go in record and then it would be mixed there was no stopping like okay we're just going to record a bunch of these tracks and then go in later and and mix he wouldn't stop it was until it was done until it was done each song had to be completed which is work on one song beginning to end and it would be a 24-hour period sometimes 36 but it was never sleep it would get done it would get done done, songs done. done in 24 hours oh yeah yeah he would be up just never stop never stop until he felt it was time to stop but but you say he'd go like three days he could go three days and then With crash a, a day. And crash a day and then start up again. And if that meant he was starting up at 8 o'clock at night to do another 24-hour run, that's when it would start. Because if he'd gone home that 8 o'clock that morning and slept till 4 in the afternoon, meet me at the studio at 7, then it would be... 24 hours. Yes. Constant, constant, constant. There were many, waking, you know, there were many walking out of the studio at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. Many, I mean, many, many, many times. I mean, I imagine, you know... Like if I could watch Michael Jordan practice, mm-hmm. it would be extraordinary. If I could watch Picasso, you know, in the studio painting, it would be special. And you saw Prince in the studio. That is that same level. You could. You weren't there to see him ever sing. He was. You were out. Everyone had to be out. He would record his own vocals, so nobody was in the studio when he would do that. What about you when he played? You could hear it, <laughs> like when he was doing the beautiful ones. And we were in the lounge, and you could hear him screaming, screaming, because he would do it behind the board. He'd always do his vocals sitting at the board. And so you would just hear this, you know, extraordinary screaming, and, you know, again and again and again and again. And then he'd come out at, like, you know, 5 in the morning, and everybody would be sleeping on the couch, like, what? (laughs) It's done. It's done. When did he write these songs? Um, while he was recording them, is what I want to say. He wrote know. in the studio uh, a lot? Uh-huh. He'd get the Lindrum out. He'd start putting down a pattern. Then he'd take the bass. He'd start playing bass. Then he'd put a guitar on it. And then he'd take the keyboards out. And he'd start putting keyboard lines on it. And the next thing you know, there was the pad out, and he was writing lyrics. And then he'd go in and, okay, everybody out for a minute. And it would happen like that. In my, what I saw mostly is that he always had a drum pattern first. Always the tre- the drum pattern, and then a bass line, and then the guitar, and then he'd layer keyboards and whatever else, and then all the vocals. One of the things about that moment sonically is that Wendy and Lisa bring something different and new to the sound and really change it. And the yeah. era that they are with him mm-hmm. is his most fruitful, mm-hmm. right? Commercially and for a lot of critics. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do they add to the sound that makes it so much more commercial, so much more artistic, so much more, and I don't, I don't want to necessarily better than any other period, but made it what it was. Well, I can only answer it 
um, from my perspective. Yeah. I can't answer for anybody else, but I, I would say that there was a, a, a musical um, kinship. First of all, they were very, very good players. He's obviously a, a, a great player, and he also loved them. And shared a real intimacy with them. Um, it wasn't until he met Lisa did he listen to Joni Mitchell. You know, did he listen to records that expanded his musical um, visions? He didn't. He, he was hearing, you know, certain jazz records from Lisa. You know, certain um, classical records, um, and. Wendy and Lisa and myself, our families grew up in the L.A. session scene. I mean, our fathers were players. So there was a, I think that he respected them intensely. There was no, it was there was nothing contrived about their relationship. And it was also really, really funny and fun the, his sense of humor that was connected to his art and with them it seemed to be cohesive like it all worked really well and sort of in um, I want to say um, allowed him to experiment musically because he had their he, they had his back like it's great you definitely do that you know how's that sound yeah, do that, or I may have something to bring to that. And him say, "What do you, Lisa? What do you? What would you play on that? Or what? What? What's? What are you hearing on that?" So I think that it was a a perfect storm. You know, he he, he probably is. Oh, well, I did know that. He means he had grand ideas for himself. He wanted to be, you know, bigger than life, and he was. And then he met two people that could help him facilitate that. The band did. I mean, the revolution facilitated his self-imposed picture that he projected. Like, they were a mach the machine in which was working behind him so that he could do that. After so many funk records mm -hmm. that were fantastic, why did he then make a rock record? He wanted to be purely the most famous famous he wanted pop success he wanted pop success crossover absolutely he was a student of musicians and performers and loved the the adoration of a crowd and he knew how he knew that like it was going to take a specific thing to to get that crowd going and during that time i mean michael was coming up and he was doing the thriller record came it was perfect for, it was a perfect time for Prince to say, uh-uh, I'm going to be the guy. It, the environment set the stage for him to do it as well. Not just his own desire to do it, but it was the perfect time. But because Michael Jackson was hot, because... Because, because they, were, they were playing, they, I mean, Michael was on um, MTV, you know? Mm -hmm. Prince was going to get on it, you know? Little Red Corvette, 1999, he was going to get bigger than that. It was time. So in a 
fairly short period of time, he goes from, hey, guys, can you pick me up at the airport? I'm going to crash at your place to (laughs) megastar. Yeah. Super rich. Yeah. I mean, was it a period of like nine months that it went from having very little to having a ton? Yes, but he was no different. He, he was never a different... There was no difference between the guy who had tons of money and the guys who, guy who didn't. He was always that guy. He wasn't... He didn't wear different clothes when he was off stage. He didn't... Right. You know, he was... Since he was a kid, he was the, a little alien child. And that's how he wanted it. So when do you become boyfriend and girlfriend? Well, I want to say it starts it starts during uh the purple rain filming. Starts heavy during the filming of that. Then it stops for a while. And then it goes back and forth and back and forth. And then uh as somebody who knows him do you look at Purple Rain and laugh? Do you want to know the truth? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, all the all of it revolution all era it. people are like, it's so all silly. Of it. All of it. It's not real. Yeah. yeah. It's it's yeah. I mean, is it like one percent real? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like one percent. It's like <laughs> no, I would say more than that. It's the music part of it, the live shows, that's one hundred percent real. Well, well, of course, of course. But the but, story of Prince. Oh yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> no. Just, no. No. What is the the moment that you're like, okay, so now we are boyfriend and girlfriend, and what is being his girlfriend like? That's a mixed bag. Um, you know, I don't, there was no walking down the street saying, I'm Prince's girlfriend. Um, and I'm sure I didn't, I, I'm not the only one who shared that feeling. He wasn't monogamous. Um, although, and, and there were times when he would be, um, when he asked me to marry him, he was monogamous. Um, and I knew when he wasn't. I knew when he wasn't being straight. Um, when I st- when we started recording the family record, that's when we started really getting very very close. That's eighty five. Five. Mm-hmm. Eighty. Yeah. Eighty five. And so through eighty five through eighty seven was very like heavy. Yeah. But we were off and on together from 84, the last half of 80, when I, yeah, 84, 85, and then all the way through that. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. 
My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. What up, y'all? It's Torre, author of I Would Die For You, Why Prince Became an Icon. We're going to drop an epic eight-episode podcast about Prince called Who Was Prince, where we talk to his girlfriends, his musicians, his engineers, his managers, all sorts of people who were close to him to find out who he really was. Follow Who Was Prince wherever fine podcasts are streamed. Okay, before we okay, so take a, one step back because mm-hmm. I think we've talked about around the world in a day mm-hmm. is quite influenced by what you and Wendy and Lisa are feeding to him, right? Through. And I yeah, I also have to say Eric Leeds. Mm-hmm. I do have to say Eric, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Who was the saxophonist? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, horns. Um, you guys are introducing him, or or. I mean, surely he knew well, the it, Beatles. It started, it, 
he he did, but he was never that the Beatles weren't um, an influence for him. He never. I, I think I've mentioned this to you before. Sergeant Pepper was not something that he was going for. There was never a moment where he was like, "That's the record I achieve. I'm I'm trying to achieve. I'm I, that's the record I I I you know I revere." Never, never. He would rather you know. Um, he would rather be doing um, a Chambers Brothers record. He wasn't, you know, trying to do anything Beatles-esque, and we weren't bringing any of that to him. So this whole psychedelic era of Around the World in a Day, that was, Around the World in a Day was written by David Coleman and my brother. And Wendy and Lisa and myself and Cole, who is Lisa's sister right here. Mm-hmm. Um, we had all sang on it, the original version of it. And I think that it was Wendy who said, we need to play this for Prince. He's got to hear what David does, because I think that David, who plays cello and oud um, and all these really cool percussive instruments, can offer something really special to, to, to him. And when he heard Around the World Today, it was literally, I remember perfectly, he heard it, got the tape, and he was like, can I have it? And that's it. Went into the studio. David went in, was flown in to do the cello parts, and then they hired other um, um, string players. And that song changed the trajectory of of that record. Like, he was now going to make the record that was you know, that supported around the world in a day. And that music came out of that. So he wasn't look he wasn't chasing some sort of a psychedelic experience musically. He was doing, he was um, allowing around the world in a day, that song to have, he was giving it a home. And he and that record was perfect for him at that time. He wanted something completely different than Purple Rain, obviously. <clears throat> and that was the next thing coming in. Now, all at the same time of, as Around the World and the Day was being recorded, there were so many other songs. I mean, it was a constant, like I said before, 24-7 recording. So there were hundreds of songs made. Within those hundreds of songs... Around the World in a Day was recorded. There are other songs during that period that are still in the vault. There are four or five different records of the revolution and, and in, the, in the vault during those, this period of time. When you say records there, you mean albums there? Yeah. Yeah. Five, up to five more albums worth of I material. Four, 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 four albums worth of material. Four albums yeah. worth of material made with the revolution in that 1984 monster period. I want to say through, up and through Parade. I can't say it's just through that. And it's, period, gr- and, it's, and it's great? Not all of it. No, I'm not going to say that, but fruitful. Under the Cherry Moon. Is next. Yes. What are the influences? How does that come about? Because that has its own particular sound that is different than what we've gotten from him before. All any of us knew, myself included, was that he wanted to make he wanted to make a movie. 
just want to make a movie, want to make another movie. That was there before the idea of the record. Um, yeah, I want to make another movie. What do you, on what, for, on what, for, for what, what, we don't know yet. And he just started recording songs. Um, I have, I mean, I, I have in, in my own possession, I've got a Mead notebook, 17 pages of handwritten script of Cherry Moon. Mm. And it's got the Rekisto scene in it. And, you know, this was all being written as we were in Paris. Like, none of this was pre-done. There was no, like, here, let's get a Cherry Moon script done, written by, you know, so-and-so. He's ha- he's writing it all out as it goes. So, before we left for France, there was a, a again, there was a great period of time recording, and a lot of songs were being recorded um, before we left for France. Um, and then it started to uh, sort of reveal itself. Like I guess by that time it started to reveal, he, he, he felt it started to reveal itself to him to himself, what he was doing. And then it turned into it's going to be under the cherry moon. It's going to be the parade tour. It's going to be this record. It's going to have this, and this is what it is. There was not a whole. I mean, in my opinion, I didn't see a lot of like managing time. What do you mean? M- meaning, I I, I I didn't see him sort of like sitting and you know like writing lists on to do lists. Like the next thing, number one, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. It was incredibly spontaneous. It's like what it was just happening as it happened in the moment, and it just moved itself forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he knew how to do that. Once he had a, an, any idea of a song, like I told you, it didn't stop until it was done. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be part of his success that he's just this open vessel. Mm-hmm. And just whatever comes in, we work on it, and we get it out, and we go on to the next thing. That's exactly and right. And we don't stop to think. We don't stop to, you know, uh, analyze. We just create, 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 and go, go, go. Right, and, and some it of it moved him more than others, and some of it felt like it it, it belonged to him um, in, the, in that moment. Like, uh, if he felt like, you know, it, under, you know that um, sometimes it snows in April. I mean, that song was, I mean, that was it. incredibly important to him and that was I don't know if you even know this that song was written April 21st 1986 he died April 21st the I mean the lead sheets are from Sunset Sound it's documented and when he went in, Wendy and Lisa, and he recorded that live, the three of them together. So I, I have to say that there was some sort of, something was happening to him at certain moments where it, it was much more potent to him than other times, the songs. But that went on that record. That song in particular is so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's so powerful such a beautiful song there's not there's not too many real tear jerkers like that before that 
out of him. Like this is real. Like we're gonna make you cry, mm-hmm. you know. And like, and and it's a good cry, and it's a hard cry that it evokes. But I mean, it's a real. I mean, like it's a different place than he had gone as a musician before that. Yes, I do believe that. This is where I feel like I get. I can actually put my two cents in and how where I sort of fit into that picture because um, we were very much in love and also Wendy and Lisa were so critical to his writing at that time as well and we had been listening to Hounds of, of Love do you know the Kate Bush record? Do you know that record? No. And also um, Slave to the Rhythm. Grace Jones. But we were listening to these records on, on, on Endless Loop, the Wendy, Lisa, Prince, and myself. And um, I think that sonically something was happening that was being shifted to, not because of, the, because of those records, but because we were all listening to them together. And... Again, I know that Prince relied on their ears for a lot of stuff. Um, for, for things that he wanted to have a little bit more potency, something, um, you know, when, you're, when, when one is writing, um, you can write straight chords or you can write chords that, have, that are diminished and augmented and they're filled and the, the, they're cluster chords and they're layered and they're emotional. Or you can have really pure chords, which would be, you know, three-note chords. Wendy and Lisa brought the real emotional, clustered, augmented, really deep-sounding chord structures. So to his musical life. You have to listen to the opening when she starts, when she talks, and she says, you know, my father was Nigerian, my mother was... African or something or other, blah, blah, blah. And she said something we were all saying. And then it goes, then Trevor brings in this, the keyboard sound. It goes, doom, doom. And it's just this deep, like, thing. And then, and then, this incredible, nobody heard this production sound. And it was, you know, it would go, it would clip here and then open up in another way. And it was unbelievable we would just play the shit out of that record i mean go back and listen to that record um but you know we were we had a place in south of france during filming of uh cherry moon and that was a was constantly playing in the background for all of us and so was the kate bush record the hounds of love listen to that record after he uh, died the song that I re fell in love with and played the most was Mountains, mm. and it felt like a rediscovery of that song. Have you um, heard the twelve-inch version of that? I don't think so. Oh, you have to hear the, the extended version of Mountains. It's unbelievable. That's Wendy and Lisa. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Again, another example of where they are really important yes. to shaping him. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, sort of 
but Scottie Pippen to his Michael Jordan, right? You've got to have somebody else there who's you great helping assist. you. Yeah, you absolutely have to. Yeah, it can't yeah. be just you out there. You have to have a great assist. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So you're in love mm-hmm. at this point, right, in the story. You talked about, you know, you're dating Prince. He's not all there. He's, you know, he's not always going to be monogamous, you know. But there is enough time that he's there and he's present and he's with you, that you are drawn in and deeply in love with him. So what is it like when he's all there? What is he like? You know, what is it like, you know, you're you're on a date or you're, you know, at home and like, you know. Not not your average bear. Let's put it that way. You know, it's not, you know, as I as I've grown um and had you know, a marriage and had a relationship where you know, it's all right to be vulnerable. There was not, it wasn't really okay to be vulnerable. Um, you were kind of always on your toes. There was not a full, you know, I was very, I was super young anyway. I mean, I was too young, but um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I mean, I felt blessed to have a working relationship with him and one that was so beautifully intimate at the same time. You know, there were many nights where it was just, you know, popcorn and television, you know, or... What shows? What shows? Living Color. Mm. Yeah. Um, we'd watch movies, too. We'd have, you know, VHS films, old, old movies. Like, what did he love? Um... Um, Philadelphia Story. That was one of the fi- the films that we watched a lot before doing Cherry Moon. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and the DP for Cherry Moon was the same DP for um, um, Raging Bull. Wow. And <laughs> that was me. 
that was me saying, if you're going to do this film, you better have a good DP. It's got to look good, and you want it black and white. Let's go. You got to you got to watch Raging Bull again. You got to watch Raging Bull. Got to watch it. And it was like that's what we got to do. So if you go back and watch Raging Bull, and you look at the DP work on that, you look at the black and white filming, you're like, it is. It's Cherry Moon. It it absolutely is. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what and what else about you're in love? What does that look like? You know, it's probably this is probably a, a story for you know the book. You know what I'm, I'm saying? Because it, there there's so much to being in a relationship with him. It's not easy. It wasn't, and it's not easy. Like we're just a, together. We're a couple. Um, he he liked to keep me hidden. He didn't. You know, um, there was no sharing me. And I was an identical twin. So that could be complicated. You know, I have very strong ties to my family. That got complicated for him. Um, it was not easy for him. And I did my best to juggle um, my relationship with him and also try to keep my relationship with my family. You know, my sister, the most important person in the world to me other than my children. And um, he knew that. That didn't make him very happy. So he was, you know, he could be hard. He could be hard on me. He could be hard. I mean, I'm sure, you know, anybody who's had a relationship with him is in, you know, I mean, I'm sure my team, Manuela, could tell you the same thing. That he could be rough around the edges. Not easy. But, but... There were times where, you know, where I knew he was, he looked to, he looked to our relationship to keep him grounded, you know, like he, I, you know, I would get, you know, at home, he'd get, come home at night and it would be, you know, like wrapping his, his legs around my legs, you know, re, just like, you know, and he always wore tube socks to bed. But he would he wrap always me. wore tube socks to bed? Yes, he did. That doesn't sound very sexy. But it was adorable. See, that's the thing. He's just, he was so adorable. On top of all of this, you know, this sexual mystique, he was just a sweet boy. You know, it wasn't always about wanting to, you know, if I can say that, can you swear yes. on the show? It wasn't all about fucking. You know, he really needed touch. And to the smells, he needed visceral experiences, not just fucking. So many, many times I would get a call, I just need a hug, right? I mean, it, even years after I got a phone call in the middle of the night, it was in 93, 94, 93. Can I come over? And it was three o'clock in the morning sure and he comes over and he's like just want a hug nobody can hug me like you can and it was just this big big giant hug and I was just giving him a big one he was like uh, you know tears he was going through something at that time and I'm you know trying to figure out where he was at during that I don't know where he was at but he was not happy and um, he's like I'm gonna come back for you you know like, oh, 
poor thing. What is happening? So, look, I don't. I, everybody, everybody has their stories with him. I mean, there's been plenty of women who've been with him. You know, like I don't. What was um, what was fighting with him like? Oh, not funny at all, because he was mean. He could be really mean. Um, and if you didn't stand up to it, it didn't actually it didn't matter if you stood up to it or not. If he just wasn't in it, he wasn't, you know. I had one argument with him. And it was before I even, we started really dating. Um, it was a, a <laughs> he'd asked me to come over to see him and he picked me up. And we went over to his, he was staying in L.A. and got out of the car, went to the ha- went to his room, and he just stopped speaking. And that, he wasn't speaking for, he just ignored that I was even in the room with him. And he was lying on the couch, and his face was buried into the couch with his back towards me. I was like, are you okay? No answer. Prince, are you okay? Did, did something happen? Is there something you want to talk about? No answer. And I said, okay. Well, if you don't want to talk about it, I'm going to go. I got up and I left, took a cab home. Ring, phone rings. And it's this little house that Wendy and Lisa and I were all staying in. And he was not, he was, I don't even, you know, I don't even want to say what he said, but it was, I said, you know, not really nice of you to be saying this. And that was like, <laughs> it just turned into something else. I was like, okay, I think we need to get off the phone now. And I hung up on him because I was like, I'd never heard anybody speak to me that way ever, ever. I'm like, what? I'm like, I don't think so. That was the one and only time that he like, I was like, oh, I think that guy's got a temper. Like Something's up there. Tell me about when he proposed to you. We were in Paris, and I was going to be the lead in Cherry Moon, and prepared, went to Paris, and um, a week, no, three days before that, we were in New York, and he, it's... I'm not giving you sequence here. It's sort of out of sequence, the, the, the events. So, but he asked me in Paris, he was like, I, I don't really, I need to talk to you. And it was, sun was coming up. It was beautiful. We were staying in the Crillon Hotel in Paris and overlooking the Arc de Triomphe. It was beautiful, beautiful. So, sun's coming up in the morning, just barely. He wakes me up. I, I want to talk to you. He just looks white. I mean, just pale pale I, are you okay what's the matter I need to talk to you okay so we go out on the balcony and he's taking his time um, uh, I don't really want you to be in the film I'm like, oh okay um, wow um and I'm kind of look at him, and he says, "I want you to be my wife." And I say, "Oh, what? 
wasn't a huge, so, uh, you know, I say what, like, what? I just did, how, how, it never occurred to me. I don't say it that way. What I meant by what was, what, that was a, an odd, what a, what a moment. Whoa, what a moment. Like, I don't want you to be in the film. I want you to be my wife. It could have been any other way of saying it, but it was that way. And I was like so taken back. And then at the, and I was like, of course. Well, of course. If that makes it easier for you and for us to have this, of course. I mean, I didn't think it was going to... My, you know, my marriage proposal wasn't going to be so odd but he wasn't down on one knee was he no he wasn't down on one knee Mm-mm. was there a ring yes we had bought a ring two days before in new york so tell me that so um just before he left for new york um it, bobby z and his wife vicky Nor- uh, norby got married and it was a week before week before we he was in uh new york and We'd been very, very, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. We were very close, but we'd had some sort of tift and Prince was not happy. And he, I've got to go to New York. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Uh, you know, and you were just never knew when he was coming or going. I'm just, I'm out of here. But it was also Bobby's wedding and Bobby and Vicky's wedding. And we were all at the wedding, and it was, you know, it was Bobby and Vicky's day, so we were all there, and the wonderful, beautiful day. And someone taps me on the shoulder and said, Prince is here. I, I thought he was in New York. And turn around, and he's standing at the back of the wedding room, and they're done. It's a beautiful moment. And then he just, Prince disappears, and we think he's really gone now, right? But he goes to the warehouse and he wants to record. And he calls everybody, calls the whole band on the day that Bobby is getting married. Show up at the, we're recording. And so I was like, okay, I mean, this is like our day. We're getting married. It's like the last thing we want to do is be going into work. But it looked pretty important somehow. And they get there and it's a song. Um called Empty Room and it was about our thing I guess what well, I'd left he'd left it was some sadness and there was a piece of my red hair on the window and I mean on the mirror in the bathroom he needed to record this he was in tears he was so upset about it and then he left for New York two days later I got a call can you please come to New York I get to New York and we're there for a day and he says I just want to go out and have a day with you. And you want to let's go shopping. I'm like, okay, let's go shopping. And we get into the limo, and he says to the guy, "Is there any jewelry stores close by? Is there anything where we're at that we can go to right now?" And I guess the guy says, "Yeah, as a matter of fact, it just up the street is Van Arpel. You know, let's just go in there." Well, open the door, and they're all waiting in there, and. They knew he was coming. I think so. And he said, show us your best rings. 
He was pretending to look for a jewelry store, yes. but he knew where he was going. I, he must, he, yeah. And so we get there, and there's this extraordinarily beautiful ring. And I was like, wow, that's beautiful. And he goes, we'll take it. And that's it. We'll take it. And we walk out, and there's it's on my finger. And it's like, wow, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> what did it look like? It was a pear-shaped six-carat diamond ring. Six carats? Yeah. It's huge. It was huge. It was huge. I don't have that ring anymore. Did you love it? Oh, I loved it. It was beautiful. He gave you a ring, but he uh, he gave you an engagement ring without making a proposal. Yes. Did you? So what did you think of the ring at that time? I just thought, wow, you've just spent a whole shit ton of money on a ring, and you gave it to me. Wonder why. You must have some excess cash. Seriously. But I, you gave me an engagement ring, and you didn't say the things. So I didn't. I, so and I wasn't going to say, hey, you just gave me a ring. Where's the engagement? So you weren't sure, are uh, we engaged or not? Yeah. I don't know what the deal is. Mm-mm. So then two days later? We're flying to Paris, and we're there in Paris, and we're there for a couple of days, and that's when he says, I want you to be my wife. Now he says the things. Yes. <laughs> now <laughs> he go says with it. the ring. Yes. So you have the ring, and now you have the words. Yes. So now we are engaged. Now we are engaged. After he formally proposes to you. Yeah, we're in Paris. Then what happens? Well, we're there, and then we fly to Nice, and then we're in Nice for a while. And the relationship is changed, not changed? No, it's it's, it's changed, no. It's, you know, I'm I'm his fiancé, and we're staying in our house in St. Vincent de Paul, and they're, you know, shooting Cherry Moon, and... I'm at the house every day. Is it known to people what's happened? Mm-hmm. So the, the whole revolution knows, okay, now mm-hmm. Susanna is his fiance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember Jerome saying, well, you're the one. <laughs> you are the one. He's going to keep you hidden for a while. Yeah, and he was like, well, no one can get, you know. he Jerome was really instrumental in helping me understand how much Prince loved me. He would always tell me, you know, there's nobody he loves more than you. Just nobody. And it, it, you got to know that. You just got to know that. Because I wouldn't understand why, well, why am I not on set all the time? Why am I not there? You know, like there's my sister and everybody's there. And why, why am I being sort of kept away and say, just can't stand losing you. Hmm. Um, can you name the songs that we know that are about you? Nothing compares to you. Mm-hmm. If I was your girlfriend. Empty room. Crystal ball. Um, there's a lot of them, but I I, I can't think offhand other than those right this second. Um, the story of making starfish and coffee oh. is the best. Mm-hmm. Tell me that. I had told Prince this story many, many times about this little girl that Wendy and I went to school with. Her name was Cynthia Rose. And... Um, 
off and on throughout my knowing Prince, he would say, please tell me about Cynthia, you know, tell me, because I would break into doing Cynthia. Cynthia was a, an autistic girl on the spectrum, clearly now. But at the time, there was no, what's up with this kooky creature? Um, I adored her. I, I, ha- I watched out for her. I thought that she was so trippy and interesting and kooky and so lovable. And she would do these certain quirky little things. And so I would tell Prince these stories about her and how she, what she would do and how she would behave. And, and um, this was off and on throughout our relationship until in, um, in 86, 85, 86, 86. Um, he, we were at the kitchen table and he said, he came up to, he was, the studio had been finished downstairs at our house and he'd come upstairs and he said, can you write down the story of uh, Cynthia Rose and Starfish and, Co- Starfish and Coffee again? Can you write that down? Just give me all the details. Just tell me everything. <clears throat> so I did. What did you tell him? I, the story of Cynthia and who she was and how she came to be and how I knew her and her favorite number was 20 and, you know, who the kids in the class were and what she had for breakfast and what was in, you know, and she would draw happy faces and she would, you know, who, who Cynthia was. What was the breakfast thing? Is that some, was Cynthia, that... <laughs> Cynthia would say, guess what I had for breakfast this morning? And say, what did you have, Cynthia? And she'd say, Starfish and pee-pee. <laughs> I'm gonna be like starfish and pee-pee. Wow! And it was always starfish and pee-pee. But when I, that was written, I said she's starfish and pee-pee for breakfast. And he was like, "Well, the pee-pee's gotta go. Is it okay if I say coffee instead of pee-pee?" I'm like, "Absolutely, yeah." But it was starfish and pee-pee. Her favorite number was twenty, and it was favorite number is twenty. Okay. And she drew happy faces everywhere, and she was extraordinary little girl. And so I gave him all the details. He disappeared for 10 hours, went downstairs. It was literally 10? Mm-hmm. Came back upstairs. He said, okay, it's done. So went downstairs, and he's standing at the, he's standing at the console. He presses play, and there's starfish and coffee. 10 hours. Mm-hmm. And then he left and he said, you can do the backgrounds on it with Susan. So I went in and did the backgrounds on it. You got a writing credit on that one. Yes, I do have a writing credit on it. I am the author of that song. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Um, what a gift. Yes. To turn your childhood story into this great little song. An amazing song. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, yeah. it fits that album, and yet it's so unlike everything else he's got. And it's so like him. Mm-hmm. Because I do think on some level that he was on the spectrum. You do? I do. I do. I think that there's maybe, you know, like he was so unbelievably gifted so smart but you know he wasn't um, the most social guy in the world you know social cues were 
defined by him, not by society. So what is that? You know, how to read social cues? You know, I don't know. But I know that he related to her being a kook. He's a kook. Was the rest of that chorus an invention as well, or was that part of the original story? That's part of the original story. That was the whole thing that she would say? Starfish and pee-pee? Maple syrup and jam? Maple syrup and jam, but not butterscotch clouds and tangerines and a side order of ham. No, that was his. That he added. Yes. Yeah, brilliant. Wow. I know. And if I was your girlfriend... Mm -hmm is ultimately about you are closer to Wendy than we are. And I wish for that level of intimacy. No, that's not how I took it. That's not how I interpreted it. He he wanted to be closer than men could be closer to women. Mm -hmm. And girlfriends could be closer to each other than what men can be to a woman mm-hmm. and that in his eyes and so he was saying i want to be as close as your girlfriends can be to you i want to get closer than what we have if i was your girlfriend so not just wendy but just all of any of your close girlfriends and, and yeah he wanted to be he wanted to be the subject of that intimacy tell me everything but yet it's kind of one-sided because it wasn't, couldn't do that. Couldn't have that kind of closeness. It, it, it couldn't. And this is the Camille period, mm-hmm. right? Where he's experimenting with the female voice. Mm-hmm. And we're recording all of that stuff at this house. This is the Galpin house that we, we lived in. We, that I built for us. And by this point, is it still 24-hour sessions, constant? Now it's even more so because he's got it in the house. He's got the studio in the house. Mm-hmm. He never stopped. Never stopped. Never. 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 Only when he absolutely had to, and that was when he was just, I gotta take a break. But it wasn't until he was done. Why did Sign of the Time sound the way it did? We went through the influences of each record. What, what, uh, what drove him toward that sound? Um, I don't know what drew, drove him to the sound. It was just where he was at. Um, I know that um, that song was written right after. We were in. We were at the uh, hotel. I can't remember the name of the hotel here. Gosh, why can't I remember the name of it? We stayed there all the time, and there was an earthquake. And <laughs> and he was like, "We gotta go. I I don't want to be here. You know, this high up in this building, and be. We gotta get out of here. We gotta go back to Minneapolis." Um, and it wasn't until the next morning, and then the L.A. Times, the front of the L.A. Times, was uh, the AIDS epidemic. AIDS epidemic. And it was like right there on the front cover. And I know that it all hit something that the, the, the paper and his being the, the fear he felt from the earthquake and then us getting out of here and flying back to me. And the first thing he did is go and record. And that was it. He recorded Sign of the Times. And that song started the journey of that album. Yeah. You got engaged, but you didn't get married. Mm-mm. 
was there ever even discussion of what a wedding would be or when it might be no. or no never talked about a wedding no no never talked about it that must have seemed weird to you yes yeah it was because i was i felt sort of owned by him in a lot of ways and um, i just didn't understand where that was going and i was at that time you know i was we were also it, it was the the lines were blurred so heavily i mean i was recording as often and as much as i had ever done at the time and also with him um then it started getting you know started getting a little it started to get um a little too much and um i i got my own place in minneapolis i left the house and it wasn't it was it wasn't a, a 6 months or 8 months after that that i just i just said i have to go i can't be here anymore I can't do this and i left I packed up my things and I left. I went back to, I came back here and <laughs> moved back in with Wendy and Lisa. And um, and he spent the better part of a good couple months trying to get me to come home. I just was like, I can't do it. Was there an inciting incident? I couldn't be alone anymore. I couldn't. I couldn't stand being alone. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand being away from my sister and I didn't I couldn't stand being you know like where are you like what's up I'm always like this can't I can't do this anymore I'm just sitting around waiting for you I can't do it just had enough like nobody should be alone this much <laughs> two weeks before Moline I got a phone call from his engineer that saying that Prince wanted to write with me again. And I was so excited. I was so happy to hear that. And he said, he has something he wants to send you and wants to see what you think of it. But that doesn't mean that, he, you know, this is what he wants you to do. He just just wants to start, the, start it going. So he sent me the song. And I sat with it for a couple of weeks. And then this happened, the Moline. And the plane went down. And I thought, Oh no. Something's 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 wrong. And I spoke to Apollonia and um I said, Apple, what's you know, what's would you know anything? No, I think he's okay though. And so I called two days after his engineer and I said, Is is he okay? He seems to be okay. It's on the up and up. It seems to be a fine. I just didn't. I was like, uh, mm, that's not right. You don't have the flu. That's not what it is. It's just, that's not the flu. And, um, you know, I'd sort of been worried about him that last year because he didn't look, he didn't look the way a healthy man like himself should be looking. Packable diet, 
you know, didn't smoke, didn't drink a whole lot. He drank, but not, you know, it wasn't lush. Like, no, something's up. He's so thin. And I saw him, I think it was the American Music Awards, and he came out in that, uh, this orange sort of lame sort of outfit, and he had his cane and then his afro. His afro looked thinner, didn't look thick, and it didn't look thick, and his skin looked sallow and so thin. And I thought, is there something wrong? Didn't look well. And then this happened. I was like, something's up. Something's up. And then when, you know, when Vanity had passed, and he was, you know, he's on, he was on the piano tour already, and I know that he'd been, you know, reminiscing and he'd been talking to the fans during these shows, that I think he was afraid. I think there was something going on with him and that he knew. He knew something physically was not right with him. Did we know that he was that there was this not to this degree subsequently though like hearing stories from people that I know who were very close to him wasn't a huge surprise but um, I think what what really you know the you know that he was that he was alone you know that he was alone that he was going for help and it was too late I mean my just heartbreaking it's so heartbreaking now 2020 hindsight had I known any of this was going on had you know my sister or Lisa had any of us known about it we would have been on an airplane and had his ass in rehab so fast you know like anybody says like if that I'd known I would have uh, <clears throat> would we say that but we would have been right up in his face about it had we known anything. Do you think you could have gotten him to go? I think Lisa could have. I think Lisa could have. Lisa more than Wendy or you? Yeah. I do. I think the second he would see Lisa, he would fall into her. I think he missed her for years. Hmm. Years and years. And Lisa was very, you know, she wasn't playing. She was just like, you know, he's got to make an effort to be here. Where were you when you found out? I was in class. I was in a classroom. In college. Getting a degree at 50 working it out and I hear somebody behind me at one of the desks go Prince died? <clears throat> and I turn and around. they're not talking no? they're not talking to you they're just talking out they loud they have no idea who I am right. they have no no one knows who I am in this room right. and I sort of peek up and I look behind and I said where are you hearing that? it's in it's in the news it's right here and I was like you can't believe everything you hear. It's probably bullshit. And I looked at my phone, and it was on fire. And I just packed my books, got up, and I said to my professor, I got to go. And he knew, who, he knew who I was, and he was like, go. And I got back to the house and got a flight with the kids and flew out. 
I don't know where I was flying to, what I was doing, but I thought I was going to go and be there. And it was totally horrible. It was horrible. It's like getting out there and being shut out from that was odd. It was very odd, but, you know, it is what it is. But you did have a reunion, uh, a wake of sorts. Yes. We had with yes. your folks. Yes, yes, it was all the people that were during our period of time. The revolution era. The revolution era, parade era. Earlier than that, 1999. I mean, there was plenty of there was many many years that we were all there, watching him become fully realized. That was a. That's a special place in history for people like ourselves to be there while he was becoming realized. Yeah. And now that you have that vantage on it, mm-hmm. he became this historical figure because talent, unique drive, mm-hmm. a supportive environment. Mm-hmm. What else? What are the... What are the building blocks that make him rise up from the boy who was saying, get these cats off my bed to now the biggest star in the world? He always had it in him, though, Torre. He was always that guy. Even the guy who was like, get the cats off of me. And Bobby, go get me a couple of hamburgers at White Castle while I stand out here. He's always been a, a unique alien he, it was him. There's nobody else that's responsible for what and who he is. You know, th- this the, the greatness that he became is always who he was. There were those of us who helped him facilitate that. It wasn't, you know, like... He was this, you know, sweet, naive kid that grew into this thing. It was, no. Oh, he spent his youth... Driving toward this, training for this. One hundred percent. Uh huh. I mean, when you talk about social cues, well, yeah, he spent his whole youth in the music room, training, working. That's it. Playing. Playing, 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 playing. I don't know many people that are that way. If any. Not when they're that young. Social misfits. That you work your ass off. That you work your ass off. I mean, he's like a musical monk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, that's yeah. all I do. So, yeah, you'd be damn good at that. Yep. Yep. Practice, practice, practice. It's all coming. Mm-hmm. Did he ever tell you about that kid? Oh, yeah. Him? Himself, his kid? All, a lot. He was a, He could reminisce a lot. He, you know, he would say, I don't ever, you know, we don't talk about the past. I don't, I don't, the, the past is the past. But, you know, I can't tell you how many times we would take drives and go to Minnehaha Falls with milkshakes and talk about the past. And when he was a kid and where he lived on the north side 
and all the places where he'd lived and who his friends are and his you know and what it is now and what he's doing now and who we all are now to him and it seemed to be a common thread though that he was always very unique was it a happy childhood as he described it yeah i didn't you know i you know there was i i didn't see trauma i didn't hear trauma at all i mean i didn't you know it wasn't this kid who was living on the streets but he wasn't living at home from a very young age no he chose not to yeah i mean that's not a normal childhood he's living with andre his mother's house Mm -hmm. from when he was like 12 or 13 that's not a normal childhood. no it's not but it's something significant must have happened to say, okay, you were living in somebody else's house. Signif- I would say significant that he didn't want to be at home. He wasn't into being at home. He was a smart guy and who loved music and he was going to be a player. Nothing was going to get in the way. And if that meant he was going to get out of the house and do it, that's what he did. He could have stayed. He didn't want to. He didn't have to didn't have to he had places to go and he knew where he belonged he had a family with Andre he knew he belonged there and he felt safe there not that there was any you know the the violence that he was running from he just didn't want to be there unique young guy who could do it young do you remember the last time you spoke? Mm-hmm. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and um, he'd called to talk about the record that I'd just done with the family, the F Deluxe record. And he, you know, that was the last we spoke. And he, he said, did I call you at a bad time? Because he could hear my little ones on the floor cooing and giggling and I said no 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 they're about to go to bed we're here and I think that every time I'd seen him after I'd had my kids he always wanted to see pictures of my girls let me see pictures let me see pictures and I think he you know he would his eyes would get just so sparkly Knowing that I was a mommy, you know, like I just knew I was to be a, a great mommy. He loved my kids. Never met them, but he loved them. And so I, you know, but that last conversation was a mixed, mixed bag, because <laughs> he didn't want me to use the family name, releasing the F Deluxe record. Um. And I was trying my best to talk him into letting us use it. It didn't go great. But it's all right. No, it's all all right.
Oh, man. What a love story. Thanks to Susanna for telling us, and thanks to you for listening. I love Prince. If you want more on him, check out my book, I Would Die For You, Why Prince Became an Icon. As always, I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please stop by and say hi. And if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review, and tell a friend. Help me spread the word about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Matt Ford with help from Shelby Royston and in association with Cadence 13 Studios. We're beaming to you from the amazing borough of Brooklyn, baddest place in the world, and we will be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from successful folks because the man ain't shut us down yet.